Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have some new updates and insights for you on the COVID-19 pandemic. We are joined by Dr. Andrew Saul, who was a previous guest on many, many episodes and most recently with the COVID-19 and, and vitamin C connection, which, which had almost half a million views. Uh, interestingly, we're recording this on April 7th. It's important to note because the things uh, the data and the information on this epidemic changes so rapidly. Uh, so interestingly, on our last interview, in our, in, my, in our discussion, I had mentioned that I predicted, and I forget when that prediction was, it was sometime in February, I believe, that the number of COVID-19 deaths would be less than the number of people who die from traffic accidents in the United States. And uh, that still may be true, but it doesn't look like it's going to be the case. It looks like it's going to exceed it. Now, since our last interview, Fauci made the prediction that there would be anywhere from 100,000 on the low end to 250,000 deaths, which is still less than up to two or three million people that others were predicting. But even that prediction just yesterday was revised. Uh, and let me get the current stats on who revised it. It was some governmental authority, uh, a new model, Dr. Christopher Murray who's the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And this prediction was less than 82,000 people will die in the next four months from this infection, uh, requiring less than 140,000 hospital beds, and uh, which is less than 120,000 than they had predicted. So we're sort of, we're on course for this. And I still think I'm confident there's not a micro down in my mind that there will be more deaths from the financial collapse, uh, destruction and, and effects and impacts from that than there will be from the people who actually die from the infection. So it's a sad state of affairs. And, you know, we, you know, we're here to provide you with reassurance and, and comments and Dr. Saul's incredible and rational and common sense insights, which everyone's uh, appreciates. So, with that preface, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Dr. McCullough. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, a lot of folks need to remember that just in any given year, influenza escalating to pneumonia is a killer. Mm -hmm. And in any given year, there's around 40 to 65,000 deaths, depending who you listen to, from pneumonia. And this is an awful lot of people dead every year. It's a serious disease. COVID is a serious disease, but it's not worth shutting down the world for. The stress from that, as you correctly point out, is going to be a killer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in 2018, literally two years ago, the number of deaths from influenza was 80,000. So see, see, you said that at first. They did downgrade it later to 61,000. Okay, no matter how you slice it, uh, this is a very large number of people yeah. that are dying. And the people who die from COVID are dying basically from uh, SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, or pneumonia. So it doesn't really matter what virus does that. It matters if you die or not. And oh, a lot of people are going to get COVID and they're going to have a mild case. Yeah. And for those who have a typical case, they're going to have a miserable flu. They're going to be sick as a dog for a couple of weeks. Well, welcome to humanity because how many times have we all had a miserable flu in our lifetimes? And those who are a danger, really at risk from COVID, usually have multiple pre-existing health problems or they have a demonstrably poor lifestyle, they're overweight or they're smoking, or they have an impaired immune system, or they're elderly. And if you have a combination of those, anything can take that person out. So we have to have perspective here. And I tell people, if you really want to get the latest update, turn off the TV. 
That's a good strategy. And then tie into sources that have essentially been eliminated from the conventional search engines like Google, which controls 92% of the search engine traffic in the world. It's so much so that if you want to look up something on the internet, it's, it's called Googling it, uh, which is a sad commentary. But anyway, if you, if you use alternative search engines, you can get the truth. Because this is, I believe this is part of the plan to suppress access to the truth, the information that you need and require to improve and, and up, upregulate your innate immune system. Right, let me give you a perfect example. And this is something that you can verify. Everyone right now can test this right at home, wherever you are with your own Facebook account. Try this little experiment. If you post a picture, a poster, a meme that I have at doctoryourself.com, on Facebook, it will immediately be blocked. Now here's what the poster says. Dr. Enkwang Mao, who's chief of a medical service at a hospital in China, treated 50 5-0 patients with high-dose intravenous vitamin C. They had moderate to severe COVID. 50 out of 50 recovered. There were no fatalities. Now this is a report from a senior physician right from China to my contact in China, Dr. Richard Cheng, who's a board certified specialist himself and a Chinese American, right there reporting in firsthand, and this is labeled false news and fake news, and you can test that. You just try to share that poster, which you can lift off my website at doctoryourself.com, and you will instantly find it blocked. This is demonstrably oppressive. Yes, it's a suppression of the truth. It's censorship. It's, it's all designed to uh, essentially fulfill their agenda, which is control the discussion on this and control access to the information. And well, thankfully- I've got news for you on this. You're going to like this. Yeah, good. Dr. Chang, um, your program here with me will go out uh, after this happens. But as we're recording today, Dr. Richard Chang is going to be doing a presentation for the National Institutes of Health in just another couple of days. I've seen his PowerPoint and it's really good. And he's gonna run down why vitamin C is an antiviral and how it can be used and what doctors are doing. And he'll mention Dr. Mao's work and he'll mention Dr. Peng's work, who's doing the major COVID trial in Wuhan. And Dr. Peng has already told us that it's working. The IV vitamin C is successful. The number of uh, new cases of COVID in China is very low. It's gone way down almost to the vanishing point. This information somehow is not on the news. And this is the very thing America and the rest of the world so needs to know now. Yes, I mean, we've been known for a while that they were using IV vitamin C in China to treat this, but really there's been very little to virtually no uh, feedback on how those trials were going. Uh, interestingly though, and, and uh, I do think it's an interesting observation that the number of reported cases of COVID in the 19 in the US is somewhere around 350, 360,000 as of April 7th, but the number in China has been 82,000 for the last three weeks. It hasn't increased in, in three weeks, which to me, strongly suggests fabrication of the data that people are just, they're not submitting it. It has to go up. I mean, it just, it doesn't fall off a cliff in three weeks. And you go, you know, they had 82,000 deaths. They led the world. Uh, and it was, you know, they had the most cases reported. And then the U.S. surpassed them. And we're now four times as many reported cases as China, which has a population that is four times our size. So it's hard to believe that they, they plateaued out at 82,000. I think they have more, more cases, but I'm glad that they're implementing it. And the U.S. has implemented the IV vitamin C. We reported that in, in an article today. In that's New right. York, some New York hospitals are, are using that. Maybe you can comment on it. Yes, that's the, I think, Northwell um, chain of hospitals, which is the largest healthcare provider chain in the United States. That's New York City and Long Island, over 20 hospitals. It's difficult to get information out of them, but to their credit, their spokesperson has announced that vitamin C is being used. And Dr. Andrew Weber, a pulmonologist, has reported that the vitamin C works. And he said, basically, um, as close as I can quote him, it's not getting more publicity because it's not a sexy drug. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Well, we need a lot of 
strategies like that, that aren't sexy, that aren't going to cost an arm and a leg, and that have virtually no toxicity or side effects. I mean, that's almost a definition of an ideal drug. And actually, you know, maybe we should just touch on this. We did the, in our last interview, but I just would like you to reinforce it, that it, at least my view that there's two functions, there's two purposes of vitamin D. One is a nutrient at normal doses, and then one as a drug at high doses in intravenous form. So why don't you take it from that? Both are important. And if we can prevent, we obviously don't need to have a hospital at all. In fact, people now are being told if they can manage this at home, to please stay home. Leave the hospital beds for those who really need them and reduce risk of infection. Remember, a hospital by definition is where we have our very sickest people with the greatest load of viruses and drug-resistant bacteria that you'll ever find. So if you have vitamin C for prevention, you are much less likely to have a bad case of any kind of viral infection, including COVID. Doesn't mean you won't get it. It means that your immune system will be able to handle it. And that's what your immune system does. We don't live in a bubble. We live in a world of viruses and they're constantly mutating and they're constantly developing. This is an arms race. So for prevention, even a modest amount of vitamin C and the Orthomolecular Medicine News Service Editorial Review Board and the Japanese College of Interventist Therapy both recommend 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C a day in divided doses, 400 milligrams of magnesium, a very modest amount, 20 milligrams of zinc, a very modest amount, 100 micrograms of selenium, a very modest amount, and 5,000 units of vitamin D, scaling down to 2,000 units of vitamin D a day after the first week. That is a big difference. So between the vitamin D and the vitamin C, we have something that will strengthen the immune system. When a person is in hospital, they are less likely to have access to supplements at a very time when they're going to need them more. And this is why we have to push. And the only way to do that is for the family to get in there and make it happen. More and more doctors are willing to do it because of the studies you mentioned in New York. Uh, reported on in the New York Post newspaper, the third largest newspaper in the United States. So the cat's out of the bag, the genie's out of the bottle, and it's not going to go back in. There's a precedent. Just say to your doctor, I want you to do what they're doing in New York. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty simple. And tragically, New York does have the most reported cases. Literally a third of the reported cases and deaths are in New York. I'm and I live in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, they're the epicenter of the, essentially the epidemic in the world. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but that's clearly the observable data, which, as I said, may be distorted because of inaccurate reporting by China. But nevertheless, uh, that's what the stats currently say. And it's going to spread to other areas. But it, it appears, at least as of April 7th, to be on the decline in New York. And I, I think this was the report that the number of cases are going down. And I don't know, what, what is your take on it at this point? It's a little blurry right now because New York is being told uh, basically everybody go home, only emergency essential services open, uh, stay put, it's gonna blow over to, in a couple of weeks. That's the official pronouncement. But I think that's probably based on what you said, they can already see the trend. These things always happen with viruses. It happened with Ebola, it happened with bird flu, it happened with swine flu, it happened with SARS. They come and they go. The way this goes is historically just like this. You have people that have weak immune systems and they suffer the most. The lesson from history, which of course we don't always learn from history. I think Hegel said the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. But what we should learn from history is have a strong immune system and you will survive. This is the way it works. And the emphasis now is on scaring people and actually telling them in the media, don't take vitamin C, it won't help you. Don't take extra vitamin D, you don't need it. There's nothing you can do to build your immune system. You'll actually see this on some news reports and some newspapers, but you'll also see others that are reporting that it's working in China and other parts of the world. And there are a number of studies underway at this time around the world that are going to be using either vitamin D or vitamin C, or in Turkey, 
they have the good sense to use both. Bet you haven't seen that on the media either. So we have a tremendous amount of interest around the world in keeping patients alive and preventing if we can. And our media is too busy scaring you into buying more toilet paper. <laughs> you talked about zinc as a supplement. And what's also in the news is this incredible debate going on between Fauci and Trump uh, with respect to the, re and, and Dr. Oz being a big promoter of this is, is hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil, an anti-malarial drug, which combined with uh, a form of, of erythromycin called azithromycin or a Z-Pak, uh, can be used to treat um, seriously ill COVID-19 patients and it, with apparently some good results. Uh, and appears that the reason it works and the reason I mentioned with the zinc is it's, it, it appears to be a zinc, a zinc that's in your bloodstream and helps put it into the cells. And I'm wondering, especially with your focus on natural therapies and approaches in opposition to pharmaceutical interventions, what your thoughts are on the, uh, uh, the Plaquenil? I think if you can use a nutrient with a drug, you get better results than if you use the drug alone. And Dr. Abram Hoffer, who was my personal mentor, really drummed this into me over the years we worked together and the four books we co-authored together. He said, sometimes you need a drug, sometimes the drug will get you that immediate result that you've got to have, but you have to have nutrition if you want it to stick. So if you use medication and the nutrient, you're gonna do better than if you use the medication alone. And I'm a believer in any port in a storm, I am inclusive, and I don't think we can afford to exclude anything. And if the drug will help get the zinc to where it needs to go, that just makes good sense to me. Yeah, yes, indeed. And the challenge is it's not going to be available at your local pharmacy, as I understand, especially in New York. It's only available in a hospital pharmacy uh, and if you're hospitalized. So because they have to ration it, because obviously everyone and their brother is going to want a prescription of this, and they, they've got to hold it for the reserve it for the patients who need it the most. So, Therefore, we should be taking zinc preventively right. <laughs> so we don't put ourselves in that position. And your body knows what to do with zinc. Uh, zinc is something that your body only needs a small amount of, but if you don't have it, all heck breaks loose. Your immune system really does require zinc in order to function. And, and this is a problem in the elderly because we know the elderly tend to not eat as much or not eat as well because they're depressed or they're isolated or their food choices are poor or they're in an institution where the food is perhaps not very uh, wholesome. And the need for zinc supplementation in the elderly goes up. This is in every nutrition textbook ever written. So what we wanna do right now is tell people, don't worry about the drug unless you really need it. It'll be at the hospital pharmacy. But for the rest of us, let's stay out of the hospital by taking a step so we won't need the drug. It's not about avoiding doctors, it's about not needing them. And that means you have to get on the wagon here. We have to do this every day. We have to be sure we take our supplements and eat a good diet and avoid the junk and continue to get our fresh air and exercise. As my mother would say, turn off the television, Andrew, and go out and play in the sun. Yes, indeed. And, and just to summarize what the observations are, at least in the United States, is about 80% of the people who get COVID-19, 80%, that's four out of five people, will not be hospitalized. It's 20% or one out of five who wind up finding their way and getting sick enough and going to the hospital. So right. that really is a challenge. So 80% of it, this is a non-issue in just applying these, these interventions. But for those seriously sick and, and uh, who are passing from this, uh, uh, one of the almost inevitable uh, interventions that's used is putting them on ventilators. Uh, and there is a physician, in the, an intensive care physician in the, the New York area who's put out a video that went viral and may have gotten a lot more attention in the, in the 10 days it's going to take to post this interview about his observation that using a ventilator in patients with this disease may be a very serious mistake and being treated improperly because of the pathology that's actually going on at the, at the cellular level in the lungs that essentially doesn't allow this, this uh, transfer and, and exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And it doesn't matter how much pressure you're putting in. They seem to be making it worse. You use an analogy that seems like it's a, a mountain sickness mm -hmm. uh, or altitude sickness rather. Uh, so uh, I'm wondering if you have any uh, comments or observations on that. Well, it takes me back to when I was a dairyman, oddly enough. 
And we used to use milking machines on cows to save time and get more milk out of more cows. And we milked 120 a day. And that's no joke because you have to do that twice a day. It's a long day. But the problem with milking machines is that they're rough on the animal. And you get more mastitis because you have more irritation, more inflammation. You're stressing that that teat, and that's not the way nature intended it. Calves don't do that to a mother cow. And if you milk by hand, you don't have much mastitis. So I think ventilation might just be pushing the point physically as much as anything else. You can give oxygen without necessarily having to ram it in there. And I think that we're gonna see uh, as time goes on, just what you said, that the ventilator is not really the issue. Yeah, and it's created a, a sort of a national emergency where you have major uh, industries, primarily the auto industries, essentially shut down now, direct redirecting their manufacturing capacity to make ventilators, which may not even address the issue, which is mm-hmm. this, it's a classic commentary on, on our strategic uh, interventions. So, uh, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I couldn't agree with you more. The issue is transferring oxygen into the body, and you can give it through them passively at normal atmospheric pressure. But what's even better, and I'm absolutely convinced, I've discussed this with a number of people and have some anecdotal uh, comments on the benefit of this, is the use of hyperbaric oxygen, pure 100% oxygen under pressure, one, two, three atmospheres of pressure in a hospital grade chamber, hard shell chamber, not these, in, these zippered up inflatable ones that uh, could have a dramatic change and, and probably eliminate the need for ventilators in nearly all these patients. Right. And making the oxygen available in a way that's appropriate to the severity of the patient is the answer. We have to remember that our body is singularly good at taking an oxygen or we wouldn't be here. And our <laughs> lungs, our lungs have a huge amount of absorptive space. I mean, that's what they do. It's just an extraordinary system that we have. And oxygen goes in by diffusion. You don't push it in, the body sucks it in. Because if you have more oxygen outside than you do inside, it just goes through. All you do is give a lot of absorptive surface. And if you flattened out all the little alveoli in the lungs, you'd have an enormous area that you wouldn't believe. So by providing the oxygen, and then you see if the body will take it up, you've made the first step. That can be done preventively by fresh air and exercise and going out and playing. And if you're sick, my father used to kick us out in the backyard. He'd say, you go outside and walk around for a little while in the sun. Even if you're not well enough, just do that a little bit. And you'd get us moving. You'd get us outside, even though we were still quarantined, had to stay in the yard. If somebody needs more oxygen and you want to give them a little pressure, if that makes the patient better, then you do it. But the idea that you've got to ram this oxygen in like a supercharger on a Mustang is, I think, a little bit, um, shall we say, um, industry friendly. Yeah. Well, especially in light of the the pathology that's going on in this disease, where it's actually destroying the exchange surface, that large membrane respiratory epithelium in the alveolar cells that is is damaged because of the viral infection. And these are tiny, tiny little sacs. They have some of the thinnest little membranes you've ever seen. Look at them under a microscope. When I taught histology, we saw a lot of this. They're very delicate. So the last thing you want to do is add injury to insult. Yes. So, uh, as I mentioned, 80% of the people who get this infection do not go into the hospital. But if you were really concerned and obsessive compulsive and paranoid and went to any physician and said, I've got this infection, what do I do? Well, they're going to send you home and say, do not come back to us until you're ready to go into the hospital because there is nothing that we can do for you. We have no clue on the planet on how to make you better. That, and that Maybe not every doctor, but that's, that's going to be the typical response of any physician who's going to going to do this. And, and I, I would ch- challenge anyone to counter that, that summary. But so what I'd like to focus on now, because there are going to be a lot, I mean, we have 300,000 cases, almost 400,000 cases reported in the US right now, most of them in your area. But that's going to probably spread to a few, few millions for the people who are sick with uh, the SARS-CoV-2 or any other viral infection, uh, a, a a regular cold or flu, you know, let's focus on the things that you can do. And one of them, and I like to review this because I, I interviewed Dr. Levy right after I interviewed you last time, and his interview is going to be airing before this one does. And interestingly, both of you recommended to me simultaneously the 
recommendation of using nebulized hydrogen peroxide, which I was unaware of prior to your, your comments. Uh, and actually, Dr. Rowan mentioned it too. I, th I think did we discuss? I think we discussed it. I'm interviewing so many people, but it was I know Levy did and Rowan did, and I think you yes. did too. So all three of you were recommending this, and as I hadn't heard of it, so I put together. I did some deep dives in the literature, and I put together a video that will air before this, and instructs people on how to use it. And we'll put a, 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 an embed that video into this into this article. Uh, on how to do that, but it's really an incredible component. One of the the things I learned in, in looking into this more deeply is that you just you want to be careful about using regular peroxide because they they use stabilizers in there which are proprietary and by law they're not required to disclose what the specific chemical is, but none of them are designed to be used for humans. So uh, you want to get food grade hydrogen peroxide and then dilute it to the three percent concentration. So why don't you comment on that? And if you had any experience recently, because the last time we spoke was in February, so. I would like to underscore what you're saying and say that you and Dr. Tom Levy are the ones that I would refer to and refer others to do because you're both physicians and I am not. But when people go to a, their doctor and they say, well, I have this virus and the doctor says, there's nothing I can do. Well, actually there is something you can do. <laughs> Uh, you could take a lot more vitamin C to bowel tolerance uh, orally, the way Dr. Robert Cathcart recommended it. Take enough C to be symptom-free, whatever the amount might be, which is how I've been putting it for 44 years. Dr. Cathcart would say, take vitamin C to bowel tolerance. And that's exactly what you think it means. The sicker you are, the more you hold. So if you are really facing an influenza outbreak, you'll hold a lot of C before you get to bowel tolerance. And this is something that everyone can do at home. My grandchildren can do this. When they get sick, they manage their own case by taking vitamin C until they get to bowel tolerance. And they're in first grade and third grade. And what's your favorite form of uh, oral vitamin C? Whatever, whatever kind of vitamin C a person can afford, whatever they'll take enough of. I work backwards. Take enough C to be symptom-free. You take whatever kind that'll get you there. Most all of the research that's been done showing that vitamin C is an antiviral has used cheap ascorbic acid. For people who are concerned when they hear the word acid, they need to remember that ascorbic acid is a weak acid. It's about the same uh, pH as uh, a cola drink or orange juice or cranberry juice, uh, perfectly acceptable. Your stomach is about 55 times more acidic than that. If a person can take vitamin C that agrees with them, such as ascorbic acid, which is inexpensive, or sodium ascorbate, which is also inexpensive and pH neutral. Do you like that as a, as a powder or a tablet or does it make a difference? It doesn't make a difference to me, but a lot of people, including Linus Pauling, recommend that you take powder because there's no excipients whatsoever. And some people are sensitive to tablet excipients. With vitamin C, you can take as chewables, but chewables are expensive and relatively low dose. You wanna be sure you have your child rinse their mouth after they have them. If you take vitamin C liquid, when you have liquid vitamin C, it's a lot less stable. And if you have liquid vitamin C on hand, you almost have to add a little ascorbic acid every day to recharge it. If you use vitamin C, the marker is, are you well? It's not how much, theoretically, it's how much gets the job done. You can't win an argument with your body. You take <laughs> the amount of vitamin C that your body says it wants. And this is the principle that Cathcart brought forward. And Dr. Cathcart treated tens of thousands of patients for decades. And he constantly came back to this. Don't ask for a number. You take enough vitamin C to be well. If you're sick, you will need more. The form is really not that big an issue. The dose is the issue. And if you are successful on this type or that type, I'm in favor of it. And what about the frequency? That's brilliant advice on the dose. What about the frequency of the dosing? The more frequently you can take the C, the better off. Vitamin C being water-soluble is constantly lost. People think, should I get tested to see how much C I need? Well, you go in for your test at 8.30 in the morning, and by noon, it's all going to be different. So you really don't need to do that. You can get the little dipsticks and test your urine if you like. But really, the best way to know if you're taking enough vitamin C is by the results. 
the more often you take it, the better results you will have and you will need less to do so. So taking a small amount of vitamin C every half hour is actually much better than taking a large amount of C twice a day. And taking a large amount of C twice a day is better than taking a huge amount of C every other day. So, <laughs> so the more often you take it, the friendlier it is for your body. I remind people that you're a 24-hour concern and you spread it out. Do you have one meal a day? Do you say to your newborn infant, I will feed you once a day? Oh, no, you won't. That's not the way biology works. We need to have breathing all the time, day and night. We need to keep having water all the time. We need nutrients all the time. We need oxygen all the time. We need vitamin C all the time. There's no surprise here. The moment you think about it, well, of course you have it all the time. What do animals do? What do herbivorous animals do? They eat all day. And what do carnivores do? Well, they eat a lot at one time, then they lie down and they digest all day. So we're an all-day concern. Dividing the dose of vitamin C is a very good idea because vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin. So you need it all the time. Your body's a 24-hour concern. You need vitamin C all through the day. And if you divide the dose, you can take a smaller amount more often. And if you really divide it up, say every half hour taking a little bit, you'll find that you'll get excellent results with less than you would have thought you would even need. You can get to a false saturation symptom by taking all your C at breakfast, and you'll have bowel tolerance around 10.30 or 11 in the morning, if not much sooner. Well, that's the false saturation because if you divided the dose, your total for the day would probably be a lot higher. Okay, great. So uh, I guess we're transitioning from the uh, nutrient dose of vitamin C to the pharmacologic dose, which you would use when you have an infection. So along that, that line, one of the next steps along to it is to increase it beyond the bowel tolerance dose to, to get, increase your blood levels even higher. And the way you can do that is there's two routes. One is you could go the oral route, where it have to be a, a liposomal approach where uh, you can bypass the GI tract and it just goes in directly and you don't have the bowel tolerance complications, or you can do it intravenously. I think obviously the oral is going to be less expensive and easier to do, uh, and uh, you don't have to get out of your house and go see a physician. So that would be a strategy. But uh, we know that the higher doses work. This is what they're using in China that you described earlier and what they're using in New York, some of the New York hospitals now to treat the COVID-19 infection. So so that's the intermediary step after you, if you can't go beyond the bowel tolerance, is to use liposomal or to go to, to find a physician to do intravenous vitamin C. That's right. With IV vitamin C, there is no bowel tolerance because it never got into the intestine. The only reason you have bowel tolerance is because of a change in osmolarity. And your body just uh, decides, whoop, that's it. And you start to draw liquid out into the colon. The colon is actually a water recycling center for us. If we didn't have a large intestine, we'd have diarrhea all the time. So this is where we, you regulate a, a great deal of water that comes and goes. And it's no surprise that vitamin C does that. Intravenous vitamin C is much more effective than oral. And this is emphasized by Dr. Atsuo Yonagasawa in Tokyo, who has basically said it's about 10 times more effective than oral. That's a rough figure. So in the hospital, some of them are only using 6,000 milligrams of IVC. Some are using 12, some are using 24. And uh, Dr. Mao actually gave one person who was at death's door and dying right in front of him uh, 50,000 milligrams of vitamin C. When we consider how effective this is by IV, you take 24,000 and put a zero on that. That's an oral dose of a couple of hundred thousand. So 24,000 doesn't sound like a lot by IV. 12,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but it really is. Yeah. Well, I think the key is getting that vitamin C into the cell. So, so as you, even if you are able to... Uh, uh, allow this vitamin C to be transported from the gut into the blood. And you still the next challenge is to get it from the blood into the cell where you need it, where it's going to work because it doesn't work magically in the blood. So that's where the liposomal of vitamin C tends to be beneficial because it transports it right through the cell membrane into the cell. So I think you get higher levels than a regular oral vitamin C. Any way we can get C in that body is going to help. Yeah. Well, in the cell specifically, but anyway, that's right. 
So you, and you would be interested, I think, because uh, they have great respect for Dr. Levy, and we discussed the, uh, some even more effective interventions in intravenous vitamin C, and, and he agreed, because I had just interviewed Dr. Rowan prior to him, that ozone therapy appears to be more effective than intravenous vitamin C, and to me, it's tragic that no one's touching that with a 10-foot pole to treat this. Mm-hmm. I'm not qualified to comment yeah. on that, uh, so I would have to take a pass that's out of my field. Yeah, yeah, but Dr. Levy was, and uh, you know, he was mm-hmm. really in strong agreement with that. As, as was Dr. Rowan. So anyway, that's just a, another comment. Uh, you know, so we there are other options, but going going back to some of the other things that we can do to support people before they go into the hospital, um, we talked about the zinc, but I want to talk about thiamine now too. I mean, what's your view? Because Merrick's protocol that uh, he has published and used for treating septic patients. And interestingly, I don't I think we discussed this last time, but many people aren't aware, but I was shocked when I first heard it that one out of, this is independent of this pandemic, one out of five people in the world die from sepsis, one out of five. Mm. This is where the IV vitamin C becomes so important. So, uh, but in part of Merrick's protocol, they're using thiamine. He also uses hydrocortisone, which Levy doesn't believe is necessary. He actually doesn't believe the thiamine is that crucial, but I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. Thiamine's pretty important. Dr. Frederick Robert Conner, who did a lot of the early high-dose vitamin C work in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, was very big on thiamine, and he gave it specifically for neurological issues. But before him, there was uh, Dr. Ruth Flynn Harrell, back in the 40s and 50s, and she used thiamine for children with learning disorders and disabilities. And if we go back far enough, or a, a nutrition textbook published last month, we find out that any infection increases the body's need for thiamine. Now that's in all the nutrition textbooks. So to take someone with an infection, and I think sepsis would qualify, and give them more thiamine is just common sense. And common sense, unfortunately, is often the last thing we do. Even though Dr. Roger J. Williams, who is the discoverer of panathenic acid, said, when in doubt, use nutrition first. In the United States, it tends to be, uh, when you're desperate, use too little nutrition too late, maybe. And we have to change that around. Yeah. Yeah. I know uh, that uh, thiamine is also used for, for chronic alcoholics, especially when they develop neuro, neurologic complications like uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy. And that really is the treatment of choice is, is thiamine. And it's so, dead cheap. Yeah. Really, really, really inexpensive. So vitamin B1, what type of doses are you recommending that prophylactically and preventively versus therapeutically? That's quite a range. Uh, the RDA is less than two milligrams, and Dr. Quenner would use hundreds of milligrams. Uh, the amount we would need is somewhere in there, but we're talking a couple orders of magnitude. If people took around 50 to 100 milligrams of thiamine preventively, especially if they divide that up all through the day, mm-hmm. they'd be getting a blast of thiamine. Now, thiamine is the vitamin that smells funny. When you open the bottle of your multiple vitamin or your B-complex, that smell is thiamine. So when your urine smells like thiamine, you're probably getting more than you need, but that's not a problem. And thiamine is safe, and you can excrete that. The excretion is an indicator of saturation. Thiamine uh, really is best taken, however, with the entire B-complex. Yeah, the B-complex vitamins work better together. A single vitamin B nutrient in much better as a, as a combination. So is there any specific uh, range of ratios? I mean, is it just a one-to-one for all of the Bs, or is there a specific uh, ratio that you recommend, depending on which B, B vitamin it is? For prevention, most people will get a B-complex B50 and it's called a balanced B50. It sort of looks like it's 50 milligrams of everything, but actually it's going to be 50 micrograms of some. B-complex is sort of like cake mix. And when you make a cake, you don't use a cup of sugar, a cup of salt, a cup of flour, a cup of cocoa, and a cup of baking soda. It doesn't work like that. So you have to have the right amount of each nutrient. Generally speaking, what I would tell people to do is take a look at the RDA, and you can do that on the internet in seconds, and take more than that. 
And a B-complex is the cheapest and safest way to do that. And it doesn't really matter that much if you're a bit out of balance. But as uh, you've asked, uh, the, the B vitamin we need the most of is niacin. Mm -hmm. The RDA for niacin is much higher than the RDA for pyridoxine or uh, thiamine uh, or riboflavin. So there's a hint right there. And then we need much less folate. We need much, much less B12. Thing to do is to take a look at that bottle, that B complex bottle, and you'll get an idea of approximately what the ranges are. It's not like taking a drug. That's the beauty of using vitamins, that the margin for error, the margin for safety is colossal. Yeah, and as you've mentioned, and I think published on an annual basis, it's a really interesting report. The number of side effects and deaths from vitamin overdose. Why don't you update us on the latest with that? Because I don't remember when the last time you published your, your latest uh, summary. Every year, the American Association of Poison Control Centers publishes who dies from what. And this is a summary of reporting from 57 poison control centers. This has been going on for about 35 years now. Um, probably longer. And they have in that time alleged about 14 deaths from vitamins. Well, I think that's pretty good. That's not even half a death a year. But some of my team said, I don't believe that. And I thought, you know, let's look into it. So we did. And we could not find one substantiated death from a vitamin, not one. It was alleged but none of them had any support for that allegation, except they had a dead person who took five things and they blamed it on the vitamin. Uh, that, of course, is not really valid. And in many cases, they said it might have possibly contributed. In some cases, they said, we think it was a vitamin, but we don't know which one. <laughs> this is how far <laughs> it went, almost to the point of comedy. So the American Association of Poison Control Centers data shows that there are no deaths from vitamins in a given year. But vitamins are often reported as having a side effect or some kind of an issue to the Food and Drug Administration, which is very willing and able to receive these. But most of these reports are for very minor things like niacin flushes, or somebody took too much vitamin C perhaps and had loose stool. Well, we know about this. These are harmless. They're just things that happen. They're events, but they are not really dangerous. Uh, Dr. Abram Hoffer said that vitamins are safer than any medication. Dr. Abram Hoffer said no one dies from vitamins, a sweeping statement, but um, he had decades of experience using very high doses. And when we read the reports of physicians who do vitamin therapy, one of the things they say right away is how safe vitamins are. An example is high doses of vitamin C are supposed to somehow cause a kidney stone because of raised oxalate and other things like that. And theoretically, that's true. But Dr. Robert Cathcart said that he had been giving massive doses of vitamins for years and years to thousands of patients. And he said, by the time I heard that vitamin C could cause a kidney stone, I had amassed clinical evidence that it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you also for pointing out the importance of niacin and it uh, reminds me that you have actually written a book with the late uh, Dobbert, Dr. Uh, Abram Hoffer on niacin. Uh, I think that may, may have been his last book, if I'm not mistaken. Niacin, The Real Story, uh, was Dr. Hoffer's last book. The other co-author is Dr. Harold Foster. And uh, Abram did die before uh, that book was finished. But I think in reading Niacin, The Real Story, you'll get a tremendous amount of information from Dr. Hoffer. He was the expert, the world authority on niacin. The other one is Dr. William Parsons Jr. of the Mayo Clinic, who did tremendous work on niacin, showing that raised liver enzymes do not indicate liver pathology. They indicate liver activity. And niacin causes an elevation in liver enzymes for some people who take a lot but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with their liver. It means their liver is operational. It is, after all, a major detoxification organ, and it's doing its job. Yeah, and uh, it, uh, he was recommending doses in very large doses, you know, in the gram doses, which in most people will cause a serious flushing 
reaction, at least initially. Uh, and uh, the, you know, for treating some of the conditions he did, I think, it, I mean, the, the results were really phenomenal. I'm not sure if everyone would benefit from such a high dose, but the, oh, no. clearly, no, it wouldn't be that, that good strategy because you do need, everyone needs. And I think for the biggest reason is NAD. And Dr. Hopper was one of the first clinicians to do some work on NAD. Uh, but to me, that's one of the most exciting biomolecules out there is NAD and its cousin, NADPH, which is the primary donor of electrons, especially to vitamin C. And we can fix this with a very modest supplemental dose of niacin. The RDA is less than 20 milligrams. Right. Uh, Dr. Hoffer would recommend that most people have 200, 300 milligrams of niacin a day. Some folks will flush even at that level, so they can take niacinamide, which will cause flushing in only one in 100 people, or inositol hexaniacinate, which will cause flushing in relatively few people. Any way you want to get it is fine. The diet doesn't usually contain all that much niacin. And one of the things that's slowing this down is that the tolerable upper level, sometimes erroneously called safe upper limit, which is not, the tolerable upper level set by the government for niacin is 35 milligrams because somebody somewhere had a niacin flush on 36 milligrams. Interesting. So I would just caution, though, a high dose of niacinamide. What is high, we don't know, but certainly the grams would be uh, because there's work that um, David Sinclair out of MIT and Harvard published when he was at MIT that high dose niacinamide is actually uh, what is negative feedback loop on their sirtuins and, and, and inhibits their function uh, because the breakdown product of NAD is niacinamide. So it, it's believing that there's just too, not, not enough NAD around. So it's going to shut down because it requires NAD to fuel itself. So if you can take the niacin, I think you'd be better off because it, it is actually converted better and more directly into NAD. Right. Dr. Hoffer preferred niacin. Yeah. Do Dr. William Kaufman, a colleague of Abrams, preferred niacinamide. But I found out from his widow uh, why. It's because Dr. Kaufman didn't like a niacin flush. <laughs> yeah, well, wimp, wimp. <laughs> he was a good man. All right, well, that's good. All right, well, let's, now I think we've covered the B vitamin complex, the B vitamins uh, well. So another strategy that's been recommended, it's not really a nutrient, it's actually a hormone, and I'm wondering if you have any comments on it because it seems to have some benefit for viral infections, viral infections, specifically SARS, would be melatonin. Melatonin's a wonderful thing because the safety studies are very encouraging. If you want to hurt yourself, melatonin will not do the job. <laughs> and uh, a little bit of melatonin can go a long way. And the older you get, the less you make. If you keep your bedroom dark at night, you will make more melatonin. And I'm about now to impart a piece of uh, wisdom that makes me very unpopular very quickly with a large number of people. And that is, if you go to bed early, you will make more melatonin and you will sleep better. If you go to bed at 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, you will have a far better sleep than if you go to bed later, even if you have the same number of hours. The old adage is, each hour of sleep before midnight is worth two hours of sleep after midnight. There's something to that. So making melatonin because you're young or making melatonin because you keep your environment dark at night are both good. Melatonin is inexpensive, it's non-prescription, and obviously something that's that safe deserves a try. Yes, I'm glad you're in favor of that too, especially with the perceived benefits of treating these viral infections. And I'm wondering what time you go to bed. I go to bed pretty early, Joe. Um, the fact is um, I literally will make a point to get to bed by nine o'clock and I try uh, for 8.30. All right. Well, good. Yeah, that's that's actually actually interesting. The range I do. I've literally, it, it's basically lights out around eight thirty to eight forty five, and I'm hoping to I'm asleep by nine. Of course, I miss the late night network news, scaring the willies out of me about COVID. But that's intentional. <laughs> All right. So thanks for for those comments, and uh, I think. The one of the, well, there's two other things. One is uh, it, it's not a nutrient at all, but it, it appears to have some value in inhibiting viral replication, and specifically COVID or, or SARS-CoV-2, would be uh, nitric oxide. 
So there, there are supplements like arginine and citrulline that you use as precursors, but then there's interventions like exercise and exposure to infrared, near-infrared radiation that can cause the release of nitric oxide. So if you need to comment on that. Well, here we go again. This is Jack Lane front and center because um, he said, exercise is your king, nutrition your queen. So he thought exercise was even more important than nutrition. And I'm not going to argue who's running the kingdom, king or queen. The point is we need them both. It's just amazing how many people need to get off their keisters and do that exercise. And you can do this right in your living room with an exercise video or by doing yoga or walking or anything at all. The exercise is absolutely crucial. I, I'm so big on that. And I would like to underscore that this is something that doesn't cost a dime. It doesn't have to, no. I mean, there are certain interventions that could improve it and make it more effective, especially if time and efficiency is a consideration is for most, although now with being restricted to home and not working, probably more people or many people have more time than they're normally used to. So, but exercise is the key. I couldn't agree more and I've been a long time uh, advocate of that. So, all right, that's great information. Do you have any other insights, observations, or philosophies, or recommendations you'd like to share? What is missing from most discussions on COVID is an appreciation of how far we have let ourselves go. We've been eating crummy food for a long time. We've been doing behaviors for a long time that don't work. And sooner or later, the body is going to be weakened by that. Too much of the wrong thing, not enough of the right thing, and the immune system is going to be weak. And viruses, unfortunately, to put it very coldly, will thin the herd. And this is the way nature works. It's grim, but if you study caribou and timber wolves in northern Canada, you find out that a healthy adult timber wolf does not want to attack a healthy adult caribou. Because if that wolf breaks an, a leg or is injured in some way, they're never going to be able to hunt again, and they will slowly die even if they kill the caribou. They go after the weak caribou. They go after the ones that are diseased. And when you study the skeletons of caribou that are brought down by wolves, almost every single one is diseased. So it's been said by the Eskimos that the wolves keep the caribou strong. Now, this is a very harsh lesson from nature but we would do well to learn it. If we let ourselves go, as my mother would say, if you do this wrong and you know it, don't come crying to me afterwards. We have to take responsibility. And right now the COVID epidemic is pointing that out in a very, very strong way. It is most unpleasant to see this, but bearing in mind that we are not a healthy nation, we have to immediately take steps to become one or there will be another virus because this is not the first and it is not the last. All right, well, thanks so much. Really appreciate your insight and wisdom and common sense approach. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. I appreciate the fact that you are able to talk to so many people who are like-minded. It just makes my day when I learn about people that have it on straight and they're not watching the news, they're going out and they're getting well. <laughs> yes, indeed, all right.